0: Welcome to Decision Space, a podcast about the decisions in games. I'm Brendan. I'm Jake. And today we're here to talk about Tom Lehman's Res Arcana. Jake, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing great. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. How are you?
0: I'm doing so well. This is a game that I've anticipated talking about for a really long time. Uh, and I think we had some really interesting games playing it. So I'm excited to to dive into it. It's not exactly the game I was expecting it was, but I think that's going to make a re- for a really interesting episode for us.
1: I totally agree. I think there's a lot of Interesting area and decisions to explore here.
0: Awesome. So we always like to start with our synopsis. I know I took the the first synopsis a couple weeks in a row. Do you want to kick us off with your, your rating out of 10 and your synopsis?
1: I thought you'd never ask. Res Arcana is a masterclass in game design that gets to the core of engine building. The gameplay glides around the table without a hitch of special cases, caveats, or any other rules grit as players work with what they've got in an almost purely tactical slapdash race to 10 points. The impression I'm left with is a game that's been refined down to the core of the idea and then refined some more, maybe too refined, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. At the end of the day, it's a game I admire and like to play, but not one I love to play.
0: Awesome. Wow. There's so much to digest there. The, the <laughs> tactical aspects, the fact that it feels maybe overpolished in some ways. That was, that was great. My, my take this week is a little bit less refined than yours. Uh, mine is Res Arcana, a game where the rich get richer and you're never sure which direction the alchemy is going to go. I also rated this game a 7 out of 10, and I would never say no to playing it, but I don't know that I need to, that I'm going to invest a ton of time in it.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll work on that as podcasters. We're supposed to disagree, damn it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm sure we'll find some room to disagree about things, some aspects of this game uh, as as we dig into some of the decision spaces in it. For those of you not familiar with Res Arcana, this is a game designed by Tom Lehman uh, of Race for the Galaxy fame. He also has done, he did all the Pandemic expansions with Matt Leacock. This Res Arcana was published by Sandcastle Games. The art was by Julian Duvall. It's two to, a two to four player game and it plays in about 15 minutes per player. But before we go any further, let's jump over to the rules overview and we'll we'll dive into it a little bit more deeply for those of you who haven't yet played the game.
1: And before we do even that, let's just do this at the beginning of the episode. Uh, For those who are keeping up with the show and want to follow along, next week we'll be covering underwater cities. So get your plays in of that now.
0: Reza Arcana is an engine-building tableau game where players take on the role of mages, utilizing artifacts, magical items, places of power, and their mages' innate ability to grow and transmute the game's five resources. Ultimately, players will spend those amassed resources on victory point-granting cards. Victory in Res Arcana is achieved by scoring the most points in the round where one or more players has reached 10 or more victory points. A game of Res Arcana is comprised of multiple rounds during which players take mini bite-sized turns, activating their magical item, building artifact cards based on their resource cost, discarding artifact cards from their hand to gain resources, utilizing the effects of artifacts they've built and added to their tableau, or buying powerful monument cards and places of power cards from the center of the table. Each player starts the game with three artifact cards from their eight-card artifact deck, and these cards may be discarded for two of any resource, one of two different resources, or one gold, the game's special but not wild resource. At the start of each round, players draw a new artifact card from their deck and gain any resource income designated on cards in their tableau. Once players have utilized their tableau to its maximum potential, or earlier if they'd like to be the first player to pass, giving them one victory point in the next round and a first opportunity to select a new magical item, they may pass, ending their actions for the round. Once all players have passed and selected a new magical item, players ready all the cards in their tableau and start a new round. As always, this is a nuanced game with lots to learn about, so I definitely recommend taking a look at the game or glance at the rulebook if you'd like to understand it a little bit further before we dive into the conversation. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more sense of the game and how you can approach playing it. But before we get into the decision space of Rez Arcana, there's a few different sort of key areas on the table that I think if we highlight, it'll give you a sense for the game. Uh, And if you've already played it, it'll give you a sense of where Jake and and I are at in terms of where we focused our efforts or our thinking about the game.
1: That sounds great, Brendan. So, I mean, the core of this game is... You're dealt a deck of cards, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so you're dealt a deck of cards. And in this game, these cards are called artifacts. So really, the way I look at the game, these cards are core to what you are trying to accomplish. It's all about those cards and which ones I'm choosing to play in front of me, and which ones I'm going to discard for resources.
0: Yeah, definitely. That 40-card deck of artifact cards, each player is dealt eight at the beginning, or there's a few different ways you can play. There's a drafting variant too, but I think we'll primarily talk about the just sort of randomized cards. But so you're dealt these artifact cards, you have eight of them, and they really dictate your your potential paths and strategies. Uh, They're sort of like the fuel of your engine, and they're your input Uh, And then they're also the engine itself once you've built certain aspects, but then also on the table before you, there's a a host of magical items. Each player gets one of those a turn. We'll talk about those. Some they pass back and forth. They're sort of interesting systems uh, with giving up a little bit of uh, maybe if you pass early, you get a first pick of the items, but you won't be able to pick the ones the other players have. There's some interesting dynamics there. You're each dealt a starting character, a mage that sort of gives you one core action or sometimes two that you're able to to do within the game or maybe a discount for in some cases for building different things. And then there's also places of power and monuments. These are sort of the end goals. They're the destination that you're trying to get with your artifact engine. Uh, Building these essences to sort of pump resources into the monuments. Or into the Places of Power, which really are the way that you score ultimately in the game.
1: Right. You can almost think about the Monuments and Places of Power as the shop, right? These things are available. The Places of Power, there are five available at the onset of the game, and they all have a very high cost. Uh, So that takes some time or, you know, as we'll talk about later, uh, at least some commitment of effort in order to get them. And the Monuments, similarly, are also worth points at the end of the game. They're worth one, two, or three, and they all cost... Or gold, And you'll have uh, two always available that you could purchase or you could take the top one from the deck. Um, and there's only 10 of those in the game. So, you know, towards the end of the game, there's may only be two or three left and you might have a reasonably good shot at just getting the one you need by taking that top blind card.
0: Yeah, definitely. Which is a really interesting sort of decision from a design perspective to have such a limited pool that players, once they've played the game enough, have a strong sense of what's there. And I think tied to that are the places of power. We mentioned that there's five used in every game. Those mechanically, just so uh, those of you listening, if you haven't played Res, those are these sort of oversized cards that are double-sided. So there's ultimately 10 places of power in the game, but only five that are ever used. And the combinations are really dynamic, but they're always being pulled from the same small pool which keeps the game constrained in sort of an interesting way. And I guess before we get into the sort of different interesting decision points specifically, we'd be remiss to mention what you're doing with it, not mention what you're doing with your engine. And fundamentally, what you're doing with your engine is converting resources, uh, red, green, blue, black, and yellow, the sort of special but not wild resource, into different resources, trying to amass them, and then dumping them into those monuments and places of power, or maybe into artifacts that you've built some too.
1: Yeah. And the monuments and places of power all have abilities too. So it's not as though you're just buying victory points that do nothing. Uh, so uh, some of the monuments may allow you to draw additional cards, get more resources, and the places of power uh, can similarly increase your income once you've had them. And they often allow you to pump uh, the, the resources you're generating into them for additional points. So for example, there's one card called the Catacombs that costs a bunch of black, uh, the black resource in the game, which I think is called death. Um, but it's one of the five colors in the game. Uh, and it, it not only produces it, but it gives you the ability of you're, allow- you're able to pay five death at a later point, once you've had it, to uh, basically put a death marker on it indicating that's worth an additional point. So it accrues in value uh, and it gives you a a way to focus your engine even further. And a lot of the places of power work similarly.
0: Yeah, and those places of power from what we experienced, Jake, and I guess maybe before we jump into the decision points specifically, each of us could talk a little bit about our experience with the game going in and maybe how we ended up playing it. Yeah, you dive in first because I know you have a really interesting history with this game. Yeah. So I was really excited when I saw this
1: game pop up on Board Game Arena. Uh, so there's, there's a plug that you can go play it for free there. Uh, I didn't actually realize this, so I think it might be helpful to other people. It is marked as a premium game, which implied to me initially that you had to pay for the membership in order to play it. But that's not the case. The premium membership only means that you're able to create a new game of it but anyone can go to board game arena create an account for free and and just join a game of res arcana that's hap- those are happening all the time um and and play with random people so you can definitely try it out there for free so anyway uh that plug aside uh when i saw it pop up on there i was really excited to play because uh this is a game i own in a game i've really enjoyed playing uh And in fact, I wrote an article um, in February of last year, almost exactly one year ago today, in fact, and, and I uh, did it my top 10 games of all time. And on that list, I put Res Arcana as my number ninth favorite game. It was a game that was uh, new to me at the time, I probably played it, you know, 10 times or so across across three or four play sessions. And it, it was a game that just had really wowed me in those initial plays. And I even indicated in that review that I thought of all the games on that list, I, I could see Res Arcana moving up the furthest. Um, so, you know, it, I it's a game I love. And when I saw it pop up there, I was like, we have to do it for the cast. Awesome. What
0: do you, so without veering too far into review space, what do you feel like were the top two things that wowed you about Res Arcana when you first sat down to play it?
1: I think this game just, exudes like craftsmanship of game design i feel like every single card every place of power um all those starting mages they just gave me like a curated feel Mm. um which is hard to put into words uh, but i think it's something like that just comes across when uh you first set out to play this game that like this is a game that is so thoughtfully designed and is really worthy of study and exploration and that's something that really appeals to me and then the other thing about it is i find i found this game like a really great almost gateway level game um i think a lot of games of similar ilk in this kind of like engine building and and you know even more generally a card game space where you're trying to like create combos um and you know build an engine really kind of suffer from rules grit at times where there's like the way all the cards interact, like necessitate the need for, you know, not necessarily errata, but just like special cases and and not understanding like if these two effects are happening, which happens first, why, why and how to resolve that. And I just find that Res Arcana is so clean to play. Uh, You know, there's just aren't those special cases. And yet it still provides that really satisfying engine building Uh experience in such a lean and compelling package. And this game in person is really beautiful. and it's, I think that's something that's important to bring up since we've been playing primarily on Board Game Arena. Uh, it's like a small box. It's really well packaged together. And, and the components feel nice to play with. You mentioned the big oversized cards. Uh, it also has those wooden uh, essence bits. So instead of just seeing numbers tick up on your screen, you're like collecting piles of these nice looking wooden components in front of you. And that, I think, feels really fun in and in satisfying in person in a way that you don't get, playing online
0: yeah definitely and the the essence is the essence tokens too i love that they're all different shapes they're not just different colors uh so it works for sort of colorblind play too that's amazing to me i am so this res arcana for me was a game that i had been tracking for a really long time because i really enjoyed tom lehman's previous game race for the galaxy and res arcana has a similar uh link ling- visual linguistic style right so that's What I think is so key about this game too, if you're listening and you've played race, you know that icons and iconography play a huge role in communicating how the cards work. And that's definitely the case for Res 2. There's a little bit of a language that you have to learn At startup, but because the iconography is used so consistently, it's what eliminates the potential for edge cases that you might see in a card game where cards fundamentally break some of the inherent rules of the game. That's the idea of sort of card games like this. But because of those icons, the rules are so consistent. And I think that uh, makes the learning curve well worth it and once you I would say spend 10 10 minutes learning the iconography, maybe not even that it's so easy and all the cards just make sense there's not too much text to digest and it, it really clicks
1: is, I was gonna say is there any text
0: Oh just so little sometimes in values right but really not a ton yeah
1: basically zero text on the cards yeah which is something that like you can almost miss and I think that says a lot about the design in and of itself as you're saying. Can I just do one petty criticism? Please.
0: Yeah, get all the stinkies out.
1: So obviously this game hasn't risen into my top 10 just based on my rating. Uh, And I think we'll get into some of the gameplay reasons for that as we talk about the decisions. But another reason is like, this is petty and subjective, but I don't love the theme. I mean, it does Mm. loosely get into, uh, there's kind of like some loose alchemy stuff that makes sense with the conversion but it's also just like very generic fantasy stuff dragons potions mages and that just doesn't do anything for me but more than that i've had a hard time introducing this game to people uh because it just like it could not look more like a gamery game you know in a world of where we have, you know, wingspan and stuff like that. I just like if this game was about butterflies or birds or, you know, some interesting culture in the real world, I think it would be so much more accessible uh, to to folks. And like my uh, mother-in-law, for instance, she played Zulkin with me and Bridget over winter break. And she saw this game and what she said was, I can't understand that just because of the theme and like this game is way easier to play <laughs> than Zulkin. like that goes out saying but it can really be off-putting to some folks just because it, you know it, it just reads in a certain way.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think the the fantasy artifice doesn't have a huge payoff. It's not creating an entire world. It's existing within this sort of like fantasy milieu type space that like we're just pulling from here a little bit and here from a little bit and like you kind of get the idea. It's sort of like nudging the player, right? Like the idea is that the theme fades away. There isn't world building, but there is fantasy. And I think that probably is one of the great weaknesses of the game. Though the art is beautiful.
1: The art and components are beautiful beautiful. It's a lovely package. I just felt like that was because I've had that experience. Uh, You know, and similarly, my wife says the same thing, you know, it just to it just doesn't appeal to her thematically. And I think as we're trying to like, welcome more and more different people into the gaming space and hobby, you know, I don't know that we need, you know, when a game could be thematically be about anything, as this one certainly could, like, it doesn't have to be Dungeons and Dragons.
0: yeah. Totally. And there's definitely dragons being pretty specific there too. There's, there's really powerful dragon. Well, whether they're really powerful, there's very expensive dragon carts in the game, uh, which is sort of interesting.
1: But anyway, that's all. I I just felt like, you know, that was worth bringing up. Uh, But let's, let's get into the decisions if it's okay with you
0: yeah no i'd love to i think one thing for the listener too jake and i were trying to sort of figure out how to tackle the decisions inherent in this game because i think our experiences with the game uh, sort of complicated the way that we wanted to approach how we would lay out the decisions but i think the best starting point for us to tackle the decision space in the game is to talk about turn one strategy res arcana is a game of almost entirely open information not completely uh there's some there's hidden cards that you have in your deck though you generally know what they are there's some hidden monument cards uh but from there you generally can see everything at the outset which makes picking your path to victory uh a pretty important i would say aspect of starting the game
1: yeah i totally agree and uh which i mean there's also hidden cards that exist in your opponent's sure. deck, if, especially if you'd randomly deal it. But even if you draft, you don't know which cards they're holding in their hand. But that doesn't feel like it does in many other card games because not that there's no interaction, but the interactions are very consistent. Like you can just assume that there's probably going to be a dragon in your opponent's deck, and all the dragons essentially have the same effect. Um, so, you know, I don't find myself really ever carrying what my opponent's holding in their hand at any given time. I just care how many cards they have uh, because that can let me know, you know, how how many resources they can rush out to generate and that could impact the race itself.
0: Yeah, definitely. the And that being because you can always discard any card in your hand to get two of any one resource or two of two different resources or one gold. And that is such a more powerful effect than a lot of the cards end up having in the late game. uh. But factoring into the sort of setting your turn one strategy, I feel like, what do you sort? Of, what's going through your head when you're when you're sitting down to start pl- and starting playing a game of Res Arcana, Jake?
1: Yeah. So the question you're immediately presented with when starting a game of Res Arcana is which of two starting mages are you going to select? Everybody's randomly dealt two. They all function similarly but different enough that the one you pick really matters. Uh, they, they may provide you a different type of resource or a different special ability. Some mages allow you to uh, protect yourself from a dragon attack, where others allow you to reanimate one of your artifacts to uh, get two uses out of it in a single turn uh, in a variety of different abilities. There's 10 total mages in the game. So I'm looking at the two I'm dealt uh, and, and then I'm also just trying to take in all of the information that's immediately available, of which there are three key things. There's the cards in my deck. You get to see your whole de- deck uh, and you get, then you get to see your starting hand before choosing uh, your mage. Then other things you're able to see is which five places of power are out on the board. Uh, as Brendan mentioned, uh, there's always going to be five and there's going to be some consistency in those five, but you'll have a different combination each time. And then finally, it may also matter which of the two monuments are revealed as options early in the game. Uh, So that's kind of the information I'm taking in when I'm deciding which mage to pick.
0: Yeah, definitely. This point in the game, too, and I guess dialing in on the mages. Some how, as we were playing, how easy or difficult do you feel like the decision around selecting your mage was?
1: I think that is a a, a very dynamic question because because it really depends which two you're dealt. Right, if yeah. you're dealt one that seems to function well with your deck and what you're trying to accomplish, and one that doesn't at all, then that's almost you know the the question of viability can almost make that feel like a not choice. So the only time when it's really hard, uh, I think is if you've got two that seem pretty much even in terms of their viability. Uh, So then that might be a bit of a challenge, but in that case, if they're pretty even, they're pretty even, so it might not matter that much. So I'm more likely to say, oh, you know what? I haven't used this one very much, so I'm just going to take that. That's, so I guess I would say, uh, to me, the decision space felt very small, almost regardless of whether there was a, a close decision or not a decision at all
0: yeah i i definitely agree with that with regards to the majors there's a couple that i'm almost never going to pick there's the the healer that just prevents someone from attacking you and getting that power at the start of the game can feel a little bit weak i i' have i ended up playing it once and i felt like i was behind because i didn't have the advantage of maybe the artificer who gets a discount on building artifacts or or the duelist who gets to pick one of one of the resources at the start of each round just built in or there's even which is the one that sort of mimics research jake do you remember the the mage that lets you draw a card
1: i think it might be called scholar and it's uh scholar uh, the way essentially draw effects work in the game there's a item a magic item that will be that gets passed around that works the same the mage and then uh, at least one art artifact card that you can build from your hand uh, and they're all cost one resource to then draw a card and that's the reason that's so strong is because as we mentioned you can discard a card for any combination of two resources so you know drawing a card is almost always strictly better than just generating one resource of one type because it, it's always going to be that, but it could also just be any type, whatever you need. The only time it wouldn't be strictly better is if, for some reason, you have to play that card that you draw as part of your strategy. Though, I think the times that that would come up and it would be right to just hold it, as opposed to doing whatever else you were going to do in the immediate now, are few and far between.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there is the opportunity cost of discarding it. So taking that one extra turn rather than just getting it naturally. But I feel like that's pretty minor. I would say, too, the more interesting decision immediately following your mage is figuring out what your turn one strategy is going to be. You can see those artifact cards in your hand and you can see the places of power. And for me, this is the most important moment in Res Arcana because this is the moment where I decide what direction I'm going for almost the rest of the game. I found when I was playing games of Res Arcana that it was really difficult to pivot between strategies, and I almost had to decide my direction from the outset. Pivoting is possible, but the the cost, if there's not an overlap of resources in terms of time spent to sort of transition my resources from this direction into this other direction, usually feels really high. But I really enjoyed about Res Arcana, the sort of sitting back, okay, I have my mage I've picked, I like that I get to pick it, even if it doesn't feel like the richest decision always, that they're generally functionally equal um, in some ways, but then I love sort of the pathing puzzle of looking at the artifacts that I have, the artifacts that I know are in my deck, and the places of power, and trying to figure out where I'm going to run.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and I think I think I think that's true, right? To me, when I think about Res Arcana, and we think about decisions and whether they're tactical or strategic, um, this game feels purely tactical from that point on yeah Uh, because you're just trying to facilitate that turn one strategy and you know if your strategy and i I think i think we should say the to the level i'm at with understanding this game the turn one strategy basically means i'm choosing one of the places of power that's present on the board and i'm saying like i'm gonna try and get that as early as possible and tune my engine so that i can use that to pump as many points out of it as possible
0: yeah and when we were playing jake one thing that really surprised me when i first saw resarcana what i was really excited about it was the idea that i was going to build all these different artifacts and then they were going to have all these really interesting unique interactions and i was going to have this really dynamic machine and that happened a little bit but as we sort of I think played the game more as i played the game more and as i got uh beaten by you consistently i realized (laughs) that those places of power the costing on them is is low enough on some of them that you can make round one sprints to them so the way res arcana works is sort of all of your cards for the most part, uh, are consumed by turning them sideways. So you'll do this effect and you'll turn your card and you won't get to use it again until everyone passes, but you might get multiple turns within each round of Res Arcana before you get to ready all your cards. And if you're managing your hand effectively and discarding and maybe start with the right places of power out, you really can make a rush to a place of power as part of your turn run strategy. And it seems like that was really effective.
1: Yeah, I think at this point, um, it's important to bring up the fact that good players and win the game, I think good players consistently, but even for players like you or I who've played the game a handful of times, I'm probably, you know, up to the high teens in in terms of plays not not crazy but you know that's more than i've played most games in my collection probably um so good players are consistently accruing 10 points or more by the fourth round so i mean of course you're gonna have more turns than that because as you mentioned the turn structure is doing as much stuff as you want until everybody passes um and eventually oh, and there's always a finite number of things that you can do because then you'll just be out of resources um So you only have four rounds to do it. And what that means is building an artifact uh, to, for example, a lot of the artifacts help you by increasing the income that you collect, the number of resources you collect Mm. at the beginning of each round. Uh, So if you build an artifact that increases your income by two in the first round, well, that's great uh, because, you know, it probably costs three or four resources to get it. So you'll be able to recoup that investment and then get some yeah additional but if the game's only going to last four rounds and you get to the third round of the game you know it seems really really rare that you'd ever want to build a resource or am sorry build an artifact that's going to increase your income because you will have sunk so much into that that you're just not going to be able to recoup that cost much less gain value out of it by the time the game ends so really what we have started to learn is that your only opportunity to build stuff. Uh, out of your hand is in that first and second round Uh, so you know I think again that leads leans into how important it is to decide where you're ultimately going before the game even really starts
0: yeah and I think that that aspect of the game is something that a lot of players might really enjoy and a lot of people might bounce off of I think if you're the type of gamer who likes games that Uh, Games in which you feel like you have a ton of agency, you can take in all this information and then make one right decision and then see if that decision pays off or not. You might love Res Arcana. There's a little bit of room to sort of mix up and adapt to other people's decisions within the game, but not a ton. If you're the sort of uh, gamer or if you like games where you get to just try things and see how they play out, Res Arcana might end up being a really frustrating experience for you. And a huge aspect of that is because of the importance of this sort of pre-Turn 1 decision in a lot of ways of what your path is going to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's really well said. Um, And, you know, it's also something that Means that this game is kind of dynamic as you're learning it, you know it's funny too, because we were playing uh on board game arena, like I mentioned. So when it first came out, I started a bunch of games and and some of those were you know two player games and but I'm in this one four player game, and just because of the way board game arena works, that game <laughs> is still ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I've learned so much about the game since I started that one game, you know, because we played a bunch just with us two, you know, over a lunch break and flew through a bunch of games and did that a couple of times. And, you know, we're in like the sixth round of that game and everybody was new to it, apparently. When we started that game and everybody's just built like all their artifacts, it's like the sixth turn of the game, and I'm in first place with like three points. So, (laughs) you know, when when people first start this game, it might really appeal to you if you're the type of person that likes, you know, building stuff and, and, you know, doing the really interactive stuff with your opponent, but then you might find over time, that you're enjoying the game less and less as you realize that's just not optimal.
0: Totally. And because of the importance of those early round one decisions having learned as much as we have about Reza or as much as I have about Reza canison since then, I feel like that game is stuck in like oopsie newbie purgatory where I'm like, ah, I've done so many silly things that taking a turn in this feels kind of futile. Like I just would rather restart. Like let's just yeah, start a new game.
1: Yeah. It's like, I guess I just attack with my other dragon. <laughs> <I> mean, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
1: But it's fun. I mean, it was fun. It was like just really interesting to have that experience you know, that you normally wouldn't have <laughs> I don't know it's like I went into the matrix right where it's like I've learned you know I've lived 20 lifetimes since I started this game and now I see all the mistakes
0: totally you've like lapped your past self as a as a player yeah. multiple times on the way back to taking a turn in this version of res yeah yeah I feel like one of the things that changed the most for me too as I as we started to play was I learned the importance of the multi-purpose cards I I started to appreciate how valuable discarding artifact cards is. Um, It's very interesting because the cards themselves don't give you this information, right? They're multi-purpose cards, but the, the cards themselves only give you the information about what they will do once built as artifacts, and you just have to understand as a player when you're looking at your cards, and it's not a complicated rule, of course this is an easy thing to understand, that every card in my hand also represents potentially two of one type of resource, one of two types of resource or one gold and that paradigm shift was the most powerful change that happened and i think interestingly this is another decision space in the game that starts really important uh and then really tapers off in the late game where you're not going to be building artifacts and you're just drawing cards to discard them. And then the interesting decision there, it really becomes, what do I take in terms of resources?
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that's so interesting. And uh, one thing that is kind of like a negative player experience for me is because of that, and, and I think this maybe just speaks more to uh, knowing what to expect. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just how this game is. But like if you're expecting a card game uh, and that's kind of what it presents as like, look, I've got this deck of cards. I'm drawing a card every turn. Like, I know how card games are. Uh, the thing I love about card games more than anything else is how exciting it is to draw a card every turn. Like, I just love that mechanic. Like, if I'm playing a card game and there's a card that says, like, draw two cards, like, I'm going to angle for that. That's my strategy now. Um, but in this game, because of just how much pressure and how much this game is all about just slapping duct tape onto that engine you planned in turn one, there like there, there's rarely ever is... Uh, draw interesting because of oh look what I drew it's almost always like I'm drawing because I know I have to discard this regardless of what it is like I'm drawing for the resources not the card
0: totally so it that's so interesting to me because that is the part of the reason why drawing cards is fun right is because we get to see what's on it and what matters and we just at a certain point in the game, I feel like there's players who would win this game with they would draw and not even look at their cards and just discard it, right? There's no surprise. The value of that card just becomes the resources that are there. So it totally inverts your expectations of as a player of what these cards are and how they function, and I think they work for the game, but they create this very discordant expectation based on the component that was used for me as a player.
1: I would say that like this card this game could have your deck face up instead of face down and it would not change the game at all yeah uh so i mean that's kind of what i mean i say like that mystery is almost pointless in in some ways i mean obviously not in every single case but in in the majority of cases i think it would feel as though it was the same game um yeah and, and the other point that you're making that i think is so interesting is like this game is almost like feels like a magic trick to mm. me in some ways where where it's like look at all this right like there's all these cards and oh you're so like resource poor because you've got three all you've got three cards and you can only build one on the first turn um you know that's how you i approach the game the first time i played it it's like okay i have one of each resources all these cards in my hand cost four so i guess i pick one to play and then pass mm. but like when you learn like when the that like, no, these are all resources like I'm actually I don't have, uh, you know, five resources and three cards I have if I want at the start of the game, 11 resources, plus I'm potentially gaining two more resources from my mage and and a magical item that I'm selecting first. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait, I have 13 resources at the beginning of the game. And it just, like, I could take this place of the power that I want in this first turn of the game. Like, when you realize that you can do that instead of, like, spending four or five turns, it, like, totally does change the way you see it. It's like an illusion.
0: Oh, illusion is such a good word for it too, Drake. It's, it's, it totally yeah there is so much artifice to the game where when you sit back and you understand the systems you realize that it's not exactly as it seemed at all your perception of when you sit down to play it doesn't match up with how it's functionally played which isn't necessarily a problem for the game in the end because how it works is how it works but realizing that and getting and experiencing those paradigm shifts and sort of like oh i'm this is a game where i start with an immense amount of power and my decisions from turn one are hugely consequential. It it is just interesting how discordant that can be. And I think the amount of agency that you have from the outset does really mean that playing this game with players of different skill level is kind of tough.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think there's no better example of, you know, the trick of this game is we're talking about even now, like how this game is all about those artifact cards that make up your deck and what you do with them. And it is, and you can win this game in four rounds without playing a single card, right? That just seems crazy when you first are setting up and learning this game. And I should say, this is based on a thread on BoardGameGeek. I didn't you know, come up with this on my own. Uh, so who knows if I would have ever discovered that if I was left to my own devices. But there are numerous ways that you can get to 10 points in four rounds for you know, by just simply discarding every card you get for resources and pumping them into places of power or using them to get gold to buy key monuments at the right time. Um, and, and, and and not only can you win with those strategies, but like some people might think that they're even overpowered. So that almost is like, wait, is this even an engine building game? <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, yeah, or is it like an engine explosion game? Yeah, right. right. It's, it's interesting too. And I think within that thread, you shared it with me and I took a quick look at it. And it was interesting because Tom Lehman popped up and sort of said, no, these things aren't broken. We knew that these could happen, but we gave players all the tools that they would need to address that at the table. We've equipped the players with the tools to keep players going for these sort of really powerful strategies in check, which is true. But again, if you're playing with players who don't see that, if you're playing with players of differing skill levels, they might not know that they have to build into this sort of thing to keep one another in check. And I will say, you've played this at multiple players, Jake. I've primarily played it at two. Uh, I have been playing that uh, four-player game that we started at the beginning. But I think I enjoy this game the most at two because of the zero-sum nature of two-player games.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because this game is, you know, according to BoardGameGeek, is best at two. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I think that some of the cards... Are definitely balanced yeah. for more players. So the the dragons, for example, are one of the cards, uh, one of the artifact cards in the game and they generally cost a bunch of resources to play. uh, And they all give you one victory point when you play them. But generally speaking, I found that like, you can, you know, that's, it's a bad value proposition. If you're playing a dragon just to get the point, you'd be better, you know, converting those resources into gold to get a monument, which can be up to three points for four gold, you know, or, you know, just focusing on a place of power. And and the way dragons work is you you know tap them sideways exhaust them and your opponents have to uh, discard two green resources which are life represent life in the game or life essence or whatever Uh, and if they can't then you know something bad happens they have to discard two of another resource and that is certainly player interaction uh there's there's no way around that but generally the cost of playing the dragon Uh, You have to dump so many resources into that, that even if it's successful and your opponent does have to get rid of a few resources, like you're still not necessarily breaking even on that deal if you're just playing with one person. And there are a bunch of ways that you can, you know, prevent that damage. One, which is just passing. If you pass first, Then the dragons don't do anything to you at all. So it just seems like in a two-player game, those cards are pretty pretty poor. However, maybe that's not true. And again, I haven't done as much at higher player counts. But if you know you're turning it sideways, and instead of just uh, one person losing two green, three people are you know clearly that's a lot better. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's optimal still. Um, But it, it. does change the balance in a way that makes me think like I don't know you know I don't necessarily disagree that's best at two but I wonder if it's really balanced for better at a higher player count
0: yeah that's the design of those cards is really interesting because you're totally re- it makes so much sense that the dragons are more effective in games with more players and I think the the other cards that it might be fun to talk about that might be more dynamic with more players are the the one that you used really effectively against me Jake that sort of said uh copy the amount of resource that uh an opposing player has in a different type so for example if your opposing player has nine red you get nine black am i am i saying that right
1: yeah yeah i I can't remember exactly what the there's a couple of different artifacts in the game that work with that same kind of Uh, mechanic.
0: So Jake and I were playing this game where I was essentially I decided my turn one strategy and this is probably on me that I didn't decide to pivot and Jake my turn one strategy was let's say hypothetically going for the place of power that needed nine red and Jake uh, really intelligently built an artifact that said copy your opponent's red cards and I should have just pivoted away and said oh no I'm not going for this at all because it just your ability to copy my progress was so powerful for you. Just by turning that card sideways. And then I think you had to reanimate so you could like turn it back up and do it again. Yeah, so that you was like pretty much- doubled it. That was, that was game. pretty much
1: my strategy became just activating this one artifact as much as possible. <laughs>
0: yeah. And then you have all these outlets with other items where you can like transmute them into other things. And maybe that gets more interesting in a, in a more player game where people are forced to go into certain colors. So the power level of those are higher. Whereas in a two player game, though, I tried it at this point in time, if we went back and played a two player game again, I don't think I would have the decision to go up in that resource. Because it's too powerful to have you just outright copy the progress that I make.
1: Right. And yeah, I think the way you phrase that, like you wouldn't have the decision uh, implies that, you know, because you just realize now that that's just not viable at all. And I think that speaks to kind of like a larger dynamic about a game that is this tactical in that like the more you learn about it, I feel the decision space has been shrinking for me. Yeah, I don't know that as my mastery of the system increases, if if it will begin to start growing again, you know, now when I don't just know, okay, I can go for these turn one places of power as I start to identify other ways to get to 10 points in four, if it will start to feel like a bigger or more dynamic game. But right now, it really feels like I make that turn one decision and then i'm just watching the game unfold and it's still satisfying it's fun to see what happens you know and maybe this speaks to partially because we've been playing on board game arena uh where you know every turn is is essentially a micro turn you're just doing one tiny thing and passing back and forth it really has illuminated for me how much In each of those turns like I'm not really choosing anything I'm just doing the next logical progression of my initial plan.
0: Yeah it feels a lot like you're winding up the machine in turn one and then from there you're watching how the you're watching how the machine plays out as you're taking the actions that you feel like you have to take in front of you. And there's certain decision points potentially within the game that I I sort of want to matter more. Uh, When you pass see seems like it will be really important and it certainly can be. uh, Passing in a round gives you a one victory point going into the next round, uh, a sort of like token that gets passed around. And it also lets you have a first shot at some of the artifacts in the middle of the table, the sort of core actions that that affect how you can approach the game. But because certain players, if they're still in, their artifacts aren't in the pool, you pick an item, excuse me, not artifacts, it's items, you pick an item the second you pass. Um, so for me, the sort of passing decision fell less like an important timing decision rather than I'm going to do everything I can possibly do in my turn. I'm going to be the most efficient I possibly can. And unless I know that that one victory point is going to be key to me winning or key to me denying the other player win, I'm just going to fully play out my turn.
1: Definitely. I, I, uh, I think that's right. I do love that the fact that passing first and around is worth one point. I think that's a really cool uh, game design feature. And while it's usually you're just doing as much as you can to maximize your efficiency. There the game is, you know, close enough and designed well enough that it's not totally uncommon that, you know, the being able to pass first will be the difference between 10 and 9 points in the fourth round and the fact that okay, if I choose to be just slightly less efficient and forgo one resource and I take this so you can't win this turn, like I know my engine is built up to the point that I'll be able to go Higher than you in the next round to win in five. So I think that is there. Uh, but again, you know, it feels more like something that just plays into the tactical fabric of what is playing out more so than, you know, it's a really tough decision. I mean, it, I guess it can be a little bit of a gamble, but there's so much open information generally you can just math out like, okay, they're going to get to 10 if they pass. So I'm, I have to pass first. So I will.
0: Yeah. I, I think that that's really interesting. And one reaction that I had to res that goes that it's such a tactical decision, sort of looking at the game state and saying, okay, I have to pass here so I can get in and then get that one player point deny you. Then my engine's going to be, it was more powerful, but slightly slower. And that will let me get ahead. And maybe I'm going to then snag one of these monument cards that checks for victory. Um, I feel like there's part of the design functionally is sort of saying here's a ton of noise and this game is going to be really hard to grok just because there's so much going on. And I don't think this is a this is a good or bad thing. But for me as a player, I think that it made it hard for my brain to feel um, excited with the progress that I'd made and not anxious about all of the other things going on that might matter some, but I just don't know that I can focus on them enough to factor them into my decisions.
1: I think that that is super subjective, because I don't know why, but maybe this is like a type of Noise that my brain is just good at deciphering, thanks to you know lots of too many hours of Magic the <laughs> Gathering as an eight-year-old or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, but like I think this goes back to our question on decision space. And if you have, I mean, our discussion on decision space. And if you haven't listened to that, it's our last episode we recorded. I think it, you will really gain a lot out of listening to it. But uh, so go back and listen to it, please. But um, I think like how difficult it is for you to understand what your best option is, is going to heavily impact the subjective experience of making decisions in this game to the extent that for many people or, you know, just people who are very experienced with this game, more and more decisions you will realize. There's only one viable option and it's just about getting to that path uh, where, you know, obviously when you're less familiar with the game, you'll be making more genuine decisions because you don't know yet what's better. And I think that's kind of like where I'm at with the game right now. But I don't know, again, does it grow once I just get to that next level of understanding?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that sort of at the outset of your experience with the game, Jake, you sort of felt like the decision space was going to be huge. There was all this potential for combos. Then the more you played it, you realized that the viable decision space was much smaller. And now if you're sort of like at this precipice, like maybe there is more game, maybe there's there is an even richer decision space, but the opportunity to the cost of getting there and the sort of play group, it would be a ton going into it. And I think that that's really how I've experienced the game, too. I think that the the number of because the player agency in the game is so high, you start so resource rich, you can accomplish almost anything there's so it's so easy to do what you need the right thing on a turn the ideal thing on a turn Uh, in any given turn because of the high player agency nature of the game starting so resource rich etc it feels like it's a game about knowing the the right decision for the seat that you're in and then playing that out what do you feel now that you've played more than 10 games of Prez Arcana, what do you feel is the most interesting potential decision that you've been offered to make by the game?
1: Well, I, I mean, I should say, like, I'm not the best at this game. Um, and, and, you know, even in recent plays, there have been numerous times where I get to my next turn and I realize, oh, I'm one point short. I took the wrong magical item when I passed. If I had taken mm. this other one, I would have been able to win. Um, so it's, I'm, this, it's not like this game is so easy for me after 20 sure. plays that I'm just like, it's obvious I'm always making the right decision. So there is some fun in in that untangling, you know, trying to hold as many turns ahead in your brain as you can. You know, and, and winning on round four or five is such a small difference most of the time uh, that, you know, even a tiny, tiny efficiency mistake can cost you big. And I would say probably the most interesting choice generally is passing because like Mm. being able to pick one of those uh, magical items can really matter a lot. I mean, there are some that at the certain point in the game, like getting that will fuel you to that early win or not. I think some of the ones that really come to mind are there's one that lets you reanimate an item to use it or uh, sorry, an artifact or place of power to use it twice in a single turn. You know, that one is a lot of times at uh, in the third or fourth round. That's just like get one point, which is huge compared to like getting a single essence or something. And in other cases, other ones will be more important, but there there will often be like, I know, like this is the one I need that's out there. So it is important to me to plan out my turn that I'm doing as much as possible and passing in time to get what I need. And then I do think there is some interplay there about when you pass. Sometimes you can even like take extra turns that literally have no benefit to you just to stall, Mm. uh, to force somebody to pass first, which It's kind of interesting if you're trying to play keep away with the item that you have. Like if you're sitting on that reanimate one in the third round, you might really want to change your strategy so that you're the last person to pass, if at all possible. But I still wouldn't say that's like the decision itself is the interesting part. It's really more like the homework.
0: Yeah, definitely. I... I know I'm supposed to disagree with you because it makes for more interesting conversations, but I'm just going to agree because I think that the passing and grabbing an item is the most uh, maybe interesting was the wrong frame, but it's definitely the most rewarding decision point that comes up in the game. It's fun getting a new af- ability, a new effect that you can do with those items every turn. And I found that the the decision at the outset of like, what's my path to victory from the place of power, uh, what place of power am I going for generally just like, I I usually, it leaves me feeling frustrated. And maybe that's because I'm not as good at the game as I need to be, and that frustrates me. Um, But I wish there was more flexibility once you have made that decision and then committed to it.
1: Let's just briefly touch on drafting because I think that's something that could really, to some people, it definitely makes them feel like that first part of the game where you're setting your strategy is a lot more interesting. I think based on just conversation I see online about this game, a lot of people really recommend that variant where you draft the, your eight card uh, deck of artifacts at the beginning of the game instead of randomly dealing them out. So we played it both ways. Uh, what are your kind of initial thoughts on whether you would recommend the draft variant or did you find it interesting?
0: At the outset, I was really excited about the draft variant. I thought having even more agency over the set of cards that you would have at the start would be um i I thought there would be a lot of room for interesting decisions there and there are but personally the way that i've come down on it if i'm playing res again i don't want to play with the draft and i think it's because it produces opportunities uh it it makes the the room in the game to you have to be even more perfect uh it makes the game even spikier when i want the game to be more flexible how about you Yeah, I
1: also don't like the draft variant. I mean, I don't dislike it. I'm fine with it. You know, if somebody's like, let's play Res Arcana, I'm cool playing it either way, but it wouldn't be my preferred choice. But for totally different reasons, I actually don't think it changes the difficulty of the game because I don't think the draft matters that much. Mm. I just don't believe the cards that you have in that uh, starting deck really impact, has that big of an impact on uh, your ability to win the game because discarding them is you know almost certainly more valuable to you than playing the cards uh at the halfway point of the game yeah. so really it's only as long as you have you know a couple cards in in your deck that are okay to play first turn that's all that really matters and as we've discussed you don't have to play a single card to still win the game uh you know, depending on what your kind of what starting mage you get and maybe the monuments available in places of power early on. So I feel like people recommend it because of having a bad initial experience where they think, mm-hmm. oh well, like I couldn't win because my deck didn't synergize well enough. But the more I play it, the more I realize like you can definitely win this game with any type of deck, uh, since you don't need to play the cards at all. <laughs> and <laughs> and so I would just rather keep the play time down i would rather play i think i think it's just not worth the extra time to draft i'd rather play 2 games and in- in an hour than one game in 40 minutes
0: yeah well put i i totally agree with that too jake so what's what's the future for for res arcana and you are do you want to play this game more do you feel like you've you've played it enough and you you have a good sense for it and you've enjoyed it but you're done with it like what's what's next with res arcana
1: i think it's still a game that i am happy to own it's not going on the cell pile by sure. any means i feel like there's more to unlock and it, it's interesting, too, because I actually like Res Arcana is the last game I played with my gaming group here in St. Louis before uh, shutdown has, has forced us all to quarantine up through now. And and when when we last played it, we had a great time. It was uh a, f- a friend of mine uh who who I've played a bunch of games with before and one new person uh and and we all played this game we played a couple of times and it was just a blast and I still hold on to that memory of you know introducing this to new people and having it be such a success i do think it's easy to teach and you know if if the theme isn't off putting it can function well as a gateway game even for folks but you know i just ha- the experience i've had is is one where I started enjoying it more and now with subsequent plays, I've been enjoying it less and less. So if that continues, then I think eventually it'll be a game I move on from. I just, I don't know why, but I really believe that as I learn more about this game, maybe it's just faith in the designer or faith in, you know, what I perceive as like this ultimate craftsmanship in the design of these cars in the game. You know, I believe that at a certain point, something will unlock and the decision space will start growing, and that will increase my appreciation for the game again. How about you?
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely, no matter which way you slice it, Rez is a game that gets better the more you understand it. And I think I I would, if someone offered to play Rez Arcana, I'm down. I'm playing it anytime someone says, hey, do you want to play a game? I don't know that I would... I need to seek it out and have it in my collection and share with other people. But if there was a Res Arcana app where I was just playing against the computer, I think I would be really excited to play this game that way because it is so puzzly. And I think that I am still intrigued by the potential different routes to victory in the game. And I want to explore the systems. I just, the, I don't know. It's such a it's such an enigma of a game because I, I don't, I feel bad saying this because everything about Res Arcana I wanted to love at the outset and I have wanted to play this game for about a year so I was so excited when I saw it a Board Game Arena and, and you mentioned it and then for some reason when we play it it's just not the slam dunk I thought I was. It would be. So I I would play more and I would definitely play more if it was an app but I think I've had my fill.
1: Can I just I'll give you a recommendation to try it one time in person if yes. the opportunity presents itself because like Board Game Arena and I think like with any game you're playing online, especially asynchronously, like micro turns yeah. is just kind of a fun killer. So I, you know, I think that's an important note to you know again reiterate that that a lot of our play has been in that format, which is not ideal for any game, but I think especially this game in some ways. So I would recommend that you try it if you you know in the future when we're gaming with friends again, if you see it at a cafe or somebody's shelf, definitely pull it down and see how it feels with like the actual components in your hand. Um, because I think you'll have a better time. I think it will make more of a difference to you than you might even
0: expect. I think that that could be a really interesting potential way to return to Rez Arcana in the future too, Jake. If we do like a, a micro episode on, hey, we played Res in person. And well, what was about, the experience?
1: Here's what we'll do. In okay. a year's time... Yep. When this podcast is still going strong and we have legions of adoring fans. Yes. Uh, we will return. Uh, we'll, we'll do our, we'll begin doing our look back episodes and we'll say a year ago, we played Res Arcana. What do you think of it now? Awesome. And so, yeah. So um, look forward to our continued thoughts on Res Arcana in one year.
0: Yes. Perfect. <laughs> do you have any closing thoughts on Res Arcana before we get back to them in one year's time?
1: Okay, this was a hard game to talk about on yeah. a podcast about decisions. I think we just need to say that. Uh, this is actually our second attempt at this conversation. And I feel like it's because a lot of the decisions are small and not interesting in and of themselves. Um, mm. But
0: it's they're all more than the sum of their, por- their parts. I really appreciate you saying that, and I think one thing it just made click for me is one thing about Res that's really that I think engine building games in general can suffer from a little bit is the opportunity for feedback from the game itself about how you're doing as a player can be low. Uh, you can play a game of Res and lose and not really fully understand why, and that can be really frustrating. So it is a really hard game to to talk about with our decision space frame, just because. You don't, as a player, it's really easy when you make a decision and you get feedback on the decision instantly. And Res isn't in the business of doing that. It just it gives you the ability, the room to make your choices, and then in the end, the the sum culmination of them comes to some consequence. And that's why I think we go back to like your turn one decision of which direction to go and matters so much because that's the beacon that we can look at and say, okay, this is where that that's what mattered my choice at the outset and maybe it wasn't that but without knowing the game even better it's tough to be able to point to oh missing this one item i guess missing an item could be essential but sort of something like that
1: yeah it's like maybe there are super rich choices but i just i'm not smart enough to see them We did play hit, a, I think you just hit, did you like literally just hit your table when you were saying that because I love the passion.
0: Yeah. No, <laughs> it's and we play it's interesting because both of us Jake have said that this game makes us feel dumb and like the two of us play a ton of games. And we play a ton of games competitively and I think we understand games really well. So I I feel like it has to be said that that's an uh, just a feature within this game is that it it's sort of uh it, it really pushes back on the player. Totally. So what
1: do you, right? We said we were going to try this out. Where do you put this game yeah. on the line or bell curve <sighs> of decision space?
0: I uh, I think I'm coming down at a solid, uh, okay, uh, 37. One to 100, one being, uh, or zero being a a game of no decisions, 100 being the unfathomable or game of intense, unbelievable complexity. Slash the game of life. Slash the game of life. For me today, 37. Where are you at with it, Jake?
1: I am at 11. I feel like this is. You know, the caveat has to be said, I love small decision space games, and I really enjoy this game, too. When I think of my scale from Candyland to the game of life, once I've set down my starting path, you know, I've picked the place of power I'm going for. I feel like to some extent I'm just walking down that road to Candyland. So so it's an 11 for me right now, but it'll be really interesting to see how I feel in a year's time.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great. And listener, if you have thoughts on where this falls within the decision space spectrum of one to 100... Both Jake and I would love to hear from you. And one of the best ways you can reach out is hit us up on Twitter. We have a Twitter account at Decision Spa. That's Decision S-P-A. Let us know what you think of Rez. Do you think we got the game totally wrong? Do you think the decision space is massive and we're just bad at the game? Is there something you love about the game that we we missed? We'd love to hear from you.
1: Are there more decisions in Candyland than we're giving credit for?
0: Like, Please let us know. (laughs) And if you have that take, uh, do let us know. <laughs> uh, besides that, if you want to follow either Jake or I on social media, you can do that too. Uh, I'm at Burnside B-U-R-N-S-I-D-E-B-H on Twitter.
1: And I'm at Jake Fried. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. And you can find all this information in, including the link to YouTube, where we're also putting up these episodes in the description of this podcast.
0: Awesome. And if you know someone who you think would enjoy decision space, please share it with them. Uh, if you don't want to nudge them to download an episode on their podcatcher, just send them a YouTube link. We'd really appreciate it. Trying to grow the podcast. So if you enjoy it, if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about a topic for discussion, let us know. And. Yeah. Thanks for listening today.
1: Thanks so much. Join us next week when we talk about underwater cities.
0: As we build the cities when the earth is so overpopulated with people outside that you have to go underwater. It's hard to imagine, but I'm really excited for that discussion. And uh, that's another game where Jake is super good. So we'll see how (laughs) it shakes out. Blub, blub.
1: You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game.